Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which we work hard to keep friendly and inclusive. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. This week, we welcome back Dr. Allison Skipper to talk about the history of breed registries. Dr. Skipper is a veterinarian and historian at the Royal Veterinary College London. She has an interest in the history of the health and welfare of purebred dogs. She works as a veterinarian at Crufts, has been on Kennel Club committees, and is very involved in the purebred dog world. Her perspective on the history of breed registries was a much-demanded follow-up from her previous episode with us. Allison, welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Skipper. We are so glad to, to have you back. There were so many questions about um, some of the stuff that you had, pre- had said previously, and so we're coming back to dig into some of that stuff. Great. Lovely to, have, to be back here. Thank you for asking me again. So one of the one of the big points that you brought up on our last conversation that we said we'd circle back to was talking about registries or stud books. And I think maybe we should start out by talking about um, what those two terms mean and, and which ones you you feel it's useful for us to dive into. Okay. So let me start by saying uh, for maybe maybe people who didn't hear the, the previous podcast I did or maybe listened to it a little while ago, everything I'm going to be saying is with reference to the Kennel Club in Britain, the UK Kennel Club, which, as I said last time, calls itself the Kennel Club because it was the first one globally. And what I'm saying may or may not be true for your country if you don't live in the UK. Um so please take that as a given, um, and I'll touch on that from time to time, perhaps. But I'm specifically talking about the UK context, which is of wider relevance because particularly with reference to the US, um, the American Kennel Club took much of its early inspiration from the British Kennel Club, and so there will be parallels and connections. I just wouldn't want to claim that I know exactly how this is played out in America because I definitely don't. Um, and there are considerable cultural differences between the two countries in this um, area, which we might investigate for, further down the line. So to go back to what you asked me, we're going to be talking about breed registries, but these are often referred to casually as stud books. Um, but certainly in the dog world in the UK, they're not actually the same thing. So the Kennel Club was founded in 1873, Um, a sort of um, effort to regularize the rapidly expanding world of dog shows and also advance the interests of the people who founded it, as is so often the case. Um, And one of the first things they did the year after they founded themselves um, was to launch the first stud book in 1874. And the, the stud book, which is still produced by the Kennel Club today, is an annual publication which is a record of the prize-winning dogs within the last year. Dogs that have achieved a certain level of award in the show ring or other areas of canine competition. Um, 
And so the very first stud books had the names of these dogs and a sort of short version of their pedigrees or their lineage or other um, information provided by their exhibitors um, and gave them each dog that appeared in the stud book from the outset was given a number to record it uniquely. And the reason for doing that at the time was that basically naming pedigree dogs was chaos. Anybody could call a dog anything they liked. You could give the same name to multiple dogs. Um, if a new owner bought a dog and didn't like its name, they could just randomly change it to something completely different. Um, and therefore, it was almost impossible to trace what was going on, which is why with these dogs that they were considering the elite animals, they'd be giving them numbers that then wouldn't change to introduce some sort of clarity. So that's what a stud book is and always has been in the UK. Um, the term derived from uh, thoroughbred horse breeding, which um, the, the Kennel Club was trying to model itself on the Jockey Club. But dog breeding, pedigree dog breeding anyway, other sectors are, are different perhaps, has never been uh, as like thoroughbred horse breeding as the gentleman who started it out might have liked it to have been because thoroughbred horses are, are all, at least on paper, um, descended from the three foundation animals. And because horses have vastly fewer offspring and thoroughbred dogs are only one, sorry, thoroughbred horses are only one type of horse, whereas pedigree dogs have always come in multiple breeds, um, it simply wasn't possible um, to translate the system that had been de developed for horses onto dogs. And therefore, despite starting with this name that derived from the horse world, um, they very soon realized that they were going to have to develop something different for dogs. And so they kept the stud book, as I've said, as a sort of record of achievement. And what they um, started out with um, fairly soon after um, was a thing called a register of names, which began in 1880. And that was... Um, a, a much more practical and functional list um, of dogs that were likely to appear in the show ring in the near future. So in 1880, the Kennel Club decided that you could only exhibit at a show under its jurisdiction if your dog was listed in the in the registries. So that before that, any, you could just enter any dog. After that, the dog's name had to be listed on a breed register. And the reason for that was to discourage fraud um, because at least there was some theoretical paper trail, even though the dog you turned up with obviously might not be the dog that you'd brought under that name at the time before. It was an effort to discourage broad um, and to reduce ambiguity so that um, thereafter names were um, not allowed to be randomly changed so that you could actually track individual names through the registry of names. And so for the rest of this podcast, we're going to be talking about breed registries um, and how they have changed over time. So, so the thing here is that because people have been breeding pedigree dogs continuously for 150 odd years, people assume that how the categories have been defined and functioned has basically not changed over that time. Um, and that words like purebred and pure breeding um, have, uh, and good breeding, um, have always meant 
much the same thing. And that just simply isn't true. The other mistake that people make is that they think that what people say they were doing is the same as what they were actually doing. Um, and of course, on one level, that's never true because people are lying or, mis you know, some people are lying or mistaken or fraudulent or whatever else at any given time, human nature being what it is. Um, but it's also particularly not true in, in the way that, in the way that um, rhetoric doesn't always map onto what people were actually doing. And people now generally think that the conceptualization of breed as defined by breed standard and the biological delineation of dogs into separate breeds with rigid fences around them, what we would now call genetically, happened at much the same time, and it didn't. So last time we talked about breed standards um, and how um, Breed standards were developed by breed clubs, obviously at varying periods of time according to when the breed was established, but for the breeds such as, say, bulldogs that were around at the time that the Kennel Club was formed, the breed standards were set out at very much the same time. And that had the effect of separating breeds that particularly in some cases, like, say, spaniels, would have previously existed very much on a continuum where Lord so-and-so might have had one type of spaniel and Lord something else might have had another type of spaniel, but actually the distinctions between them were pretty fluid, into dogs that at least on paper were quite distinct, defined by the characteristics of the breed standards. But bearing in mind that um, before all this had happened, there simply weren't separate breeds in exactly the same way as we think of them now. They were just defined loosely by their appearance and by their function. That biological separation took a long time. And originally, when breed registries were first founded, certainly the UK breed registry was an open register. It was not, as we think of pedigree dog registries now, a closed register. It was an open register where any dog could be added to the register, regardless of whether its parents were on the register or not. And in fact, regardless of, you, of whether you even knew whether, who its parents were or not. So in the early, early entries in the breed registries, you get, you know, major sire, um, due mother, duchess, maybe, or major pedigree unknown. Um, and a great many of the entries have really sketchy pedigrees, if any at all. And gradually, gradually over time, that changed. And it changed um, partly in order to reduce ambiguity and fraud still and to, to produce more reliable records, but also largely driven by changing ideas of what good breeding was and of what pure breeding was. Um, and, and that's what people don't necessarily know, that pure breeding in the way we think of it today with really rigid fences around um, canine populations is basically an invention of the mid 20th century or the sort of second third of the 20th century onwards, though it began before that. That's so much more recent than I thought it was. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the reason for that, fundamentally, 
um, is linked to changing understandings of heredity and particularly the, the rise of Mendelism. So if you think back to the late 19th century, people just didn't understand heredity in the same way as we do now. Um, they talked in terms of blood, and of course, we still use the terms blood and bloodlines, but now we use them, we use bloodline as a sort of um, visual way of referring to a certain family of dogs, or it is a useful way, you know, if you're in the dog breeding world and you say, oh, you know, that bloodline, I really love the, the head of the dogs in that bloodline, everybody does know what you mean. Um, but we now think of the, that appearance of a dog's head being transmitted through generations genetically, right? When those terms were developed, people thought of heredity in terms of blood because they didn't know what a gene was. And it's really quite hard for us. We're, what, third, fourth generation of people who know about genetics on one level or another to recapture that worldview in much the same way as it's quite hard to imagine how people ever thought that uh, the sun went round the earth. Um, but if you if you immerse yourself in how people thought in the late 19th century, you can begin to get a bit of a flavour for it. So you have to place yourself in a world where, they, where educated science still thought about the inheritance of acquired characteristics as an everyday event. And of course, as as our understanding of heredity has become more nuanced again recently, we sort of begin to think about the inheritance of acquired characteristics a bit because that's what epigenetics does, you know, that, that there is an interaction between the genome of the individual and the environment they interact with during their life in a way that wasn't considered possible 30 or 40 years ago. So all these things sort of come full circle in a way. But if you if you think about the 19th century incarnation of this, there was still very widespread belief in the inheritance of acquired characteristics to varying extents. So the more credulous people would think that if a pregnant bitch saw a herd of spotted cows, she might have mismarked puppies. Um, but at the more scientific end of the spectrum, there was still a widespread belief in telegony, for example, which is the belief that a subsequent conception will be influenced by the hereditary material of a previous conception. So, yes, and that's almost, I feel like people know that that's not the case today, but there's still this emotional feeling that once, you know, if a purebred dog has been bred to a different breed, then there's this emotional feeling that somehow... She isn't. It, she isn't as appropriate for continuing to produce dogs of her same breed later on. Is that I, I haven't heard that much lately. I, you still see it in the in the dog press as sort of well. Of course, we know it's not true, but we still feel the need to mention it. Um, yeah. In the middle of the twentieth century, um, I guess maybe I've just not heard those conversations. But I've yeah, seen a so, lot of pushback along the lines of like, well, poodles are going to disappear because they're being used to produce doodles or something like that. Um, with this idea that they can't they can't possibly produce both. Right. They're going to be used for one or the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
but I, I would I would hope not many people today literally think that a bitch is you know tainted. Yeah, I don't. Right, I don't think they literally conception. think it. It's but it's it's. I feel like there's this emotional. There's probably it, a, a sort of cultural yeah. legacy in the way people yes, think about exactly. these things. Yes. Not if they actually sit down and think about it logically, but if they're right. just thinking with their guts. Yeah, possibly. Exactly. So. Exactly. Um, but certainly, if you're thinking about the 1890s, a lot of the majority of people genuinely did think that if a pedigree bitch was mismated by a dog from another breed, all her subsequent conceptions might have a, a, a physical evidence of that previous mating. Or if it was a dog of the same breed, if if the, if, if it particularly they thought the first conception would have a very powerful influence on subsequent conceptions for good or ill. If it was a dog with a strong physical fault or virtue, that that might somehow seep through to subsequent conceptions. Um, and certainly people thought that other environmental factors like food or soft living or the urban degeneration of um, industrialization, all these sorts of things, um, could to varying extents exert good or often bad influences on the progeny. So if you're living in this very amorphous, nebulous world where breeding is very influenced by a huge variety of factors above and beyond the dogs that you're breeding with themselves, they're also including those dogs, obviously, you want to do what you can to maximize the chances of producing the qualities you want in the progeny. And you do that by pure breeding in the original sense, which means close breeding to dogs of good blood, where good blood in inverted commas means dogs preferably with a long pedigree of ancestors that have been chosen for qualities of virtue and that are known to have been bred quite closely together in order to preserve and concentrate and, and strengthen that good blood so that it's powerful enough to overcome all these vague, unpredictable, adverse influences that might weaken your strain. And it, you know, it, it's like the difference between analog and digital almost. It's a world where there's all this blurriness around the edges. What it doesn't mean necessarily is a closed population. Because if you want to correct your purebred strain, you can do so by, by using an outcross. And the outcross might just be another purebred strain, or it might be a dog that looks the same but has an unknown background or a very separate background. It might even be a dog of another breed. Um, and they, the, the breeders of that day, I'm talking around the turn of the 20th century, they valued pure breeding in the sense of breeding from related dogs in a more or less closed group, but they absolutely regarded outcrossing whether to another dog of the same breed or another breed altogether as a useful tool in their toolbox when they needed it. Um, and you see discussion of this, um, and the breed registries completely reflect this. 
So, and before 1909, and again, I'm talking specifically about the UK context here, not only was the, were the breed registries all open, but there was no way of telling, um, uh, there was no way of, of differentiating between registered and unregistered dogs because there was no way of indicating whether a dog's parents were themselves registered or not. So um, if you had an entry on the register, um, the only way you could tell whether the dog's parents that were entered against its name on the register had been registered themselves was by cross-checking or your own personal knowledge. So if you had, a, you know, if you have the dog we've, you know, we've invented before, Major, whose parents are Duke and Duchess, you'd look at that and, I mean, obviously the names would probably be slightly more complicated than this, but if it said, um, you know, Red Duchess or Black Duke or something, um, unless you happen to know that Black Duke could be bred by so-and-so, um, the registry wouldn't tell you that. And so people would have to do manual cross-checking or use their own information to maintain pedigree records, and that's what they generally did. And In, the registry at this point is pre-internet, so it's a published book. You would go get a physical book and leaf through it? So, so there was a registry of names in each month's Kennel Gazette. So the Kennel Gazette was and still is a month, uh, has been more or less continuously published with the odd break by the Kennel Club since the 1880s. Um, and it's not actually within the Kennel Gazette magazine anymore. It's a separate breed register supplement that's produced quarterly now. But back then, the Kennel Gazette was a monthly publication that had sort of news articles and feature articles in the first half. And then the back half was the registry of names for all the breeds. Of course, there were way fewer breeds and way fewer dogs within most breeds. So it would all fit into a monthly magazine. And the bound volumes of it in the Kennel Club Library now each one's the sort of size of a largish Bible or, um, you know, a largest encyclopedia volume for a whole year. And they're not unmanageably large at all. Um, and so in 19, and so if you wanted to check this stuff, you would either subscribe to the Kennel Gazette and have your own records, or you would go and look, I suppose, at the Kennel Gazette in, in London and just flick through the volumes until you found the information you wanted. Um, or if it was your own breed, you might very well keep your own records or you would, um, you know, have your uh, friends in the breed who kept their own records and you would just write to them and they would send you a handwritten pedigree or a typed out pedigree of the dogs you were interested in. And there's plenty of correspondence of this sort in the archives or quoted in books of various sorts. The key thing that happened in 1909 was that the Kennel Club decided to differentiate um, between the pair, between when 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 entering a name in the registry of names, they for the first time indicated if a dog's parents were unregistered by the very simple method of printing them in italic type. So, if Black Duke was a registered dog himself, his name would be in conventional type, and if Black Duke hadn't been registered himself, the sire of the dog we're talking about, then the name would be printed in italic type. And so um, allowing for errors by the printers or the um, uh, contributors or whatever else, broadly speaking, as you look through the registers from 1909 onwards, 
you can see which dogs had registered or unregistered parents and how many of them had registered or unregistered parents. And what I've done as part of my research is pick some sample breeds and go through and literally count, because none of this has been digitized, um, uh, how many dogs were registered or unregistered among the parents of dogs that were put on the breed registries at this time. And when this recording started in around 1910, depending on the breed, and it varies by breed, somewhere between a third and two thirds of all the recorded parents were not registered themselves. Oh, wow. Um, and so we have in... no way of knowing as well if they were a different breed. Um, different breeds would be written separately. Um, it wasn't quite that much of a free-for-all. Um, so um, although uh, although crossbreeding was allowed, um, it did have to be denoted separately. So you could assume they were at least supposedly the same breed. Um, and in many cases, the sire would be registered, but the dam wouldn't be. Um, so it was only a smaller proportion where both parents were unregistered, but only um, two-thirds to a third of dogs would have both parents registered. Now, that doesn't mean that the, the unregistered parents were all a complete free-for-all, because in many cases, breeders simply didn't bother to register their dogs unless they were going to show them. Remembering that at yes. this point, showing was, today. Yes. Yeah, showing was primarily um, a, sorry, registering was primarily a, a, a requirement for the show ring rather than anything else. Um, sometimes they would register them when they were going to breed from them, but not always. And they had more reason even than people do today not to register them unless they were going to show them because the mortality was far higher. Um, so a quarter of all dogs died from distemper at that time, often in the first few months of life. So, uh, uh, you know, clearly you wouldn't bother to register a dog at all, probably, until it was old enough to be shown and hadn't died from distemper yet, at which, at which point there was more of a chance that your money wasn't going to be wasted and it would actually end up in the show ring. Um, and so you still have a registry that's absolutely definitely open, still a good number of dogs that don't have ancestors from within the show population, but you do at least have a methodology where you can distinguish the registered from the unregistered so that the possibility began to build up over generations um, a, a sort of effective database, though obviously not usually um, thought of in quite that way, where you could begin to differentiate the registered population from the unregistered. So what would it look like if you had a dog whose parents were unregistered and you wanted to register the dog? Were there hoops to jump through to make that happen? Originally, no. So originally, if, you know, around 1910, if you wanted to register a dog with unregistered parents, that's completely fine. You just send in your form, noting that the parents are called, you know, Duke and Kitty or whatever, and that they're unregistered, and then it they they just appear in italic type. That's it. Um, gradually, however, um, 
that differentiation became to be more prevalent and more encouraged. So I guess the other thing I want to say before we move on in time is it's difficult to establish if you're just looking at breed registries of a certain period exactly what proportion of that population would have genuinely had nothing to do with the show ring and been the much wider population and what population is basically still the what you might call the hardcore serious breeders but just not bothering to register their dogs because it wasn't then compulsory but a very rough way of doing it is if you sort of count up how many dogs are being added to the registries whose pedigrees were entirely unknown or who had at least one parent with an absolutely untraceably common name because it's like you know people were using kennel affixes then so if you've got a kennel affix um, that's being used in an unregistered name you know that that is still basically part of the show population you you should say what a kennel affix is i, I should know, do but... right so um, so a kennel affix, which it functions in most countries in the world that are involved in this this um, activity, I think, is a word that within that country is effectively licensed to that breeder for their exclusive use and they can put it on the names of all their dogs. Um, and those have been around since the late 19th century as well. Um, so... Um, it, it'll be a common word. My my affix, which was my mum's before me, is Gilsland, for example. Um, and these days, um, if you're registering a dog that you've bred in the UK, you have to have the prefix or affix at the beginning of the name. Um, so uh, you would register a dog as Gilsland Black Duke or whatever. Originally, um, you could put it at the beginning or the end of the name. So you might have Gilsland Black Duke or Black Duke of Gilsland or anything else. But obviously, if you're if you're looking at these early records and you see an unregistered dog called Gilsland Black Duke, uh, which is the father of a puppy that's being registered as Gilsland Major, then you know perfectly well that it's still part of the core show population. It just doesn't happen to have been registered. If you think about the names that are far more like pet names that people would be less likely to register a, a dog with if they were a serious breeder, things like Floss or Molly or Tiny Tim or something like that, where you get lots of them and reckon that those are much more likely to be dogs from outside the core show population. And of course, dogs that are pedigree unknown are likely to be outside the show population. Then at this early period, you can reckon that probably roughly, really roughly, depending on breed, about 15% of dogs that are added to the breed registry have basically no traceable ancestry. And the rest have ancestry of varying shades of gray, in terms of the traceability and the relationship to the core population, even if the paperwork hadn't been completed strictly. Does that make sense? I mean, so, yeah, but I'm just, I'm trying to visualize what it really meant. So, um, I mean, did it mean that the dogs were still breeding within a closed population and had a fairly strict type or were some of these dogs that weren't being traced as closely, you know, were they were there outcrosses coming through? Was the type looser? How you know if someone brings in a dog and just asserts that they're a part of that breed? How did people know? Um, well, it could be done just on appearance. 
Um, oh, fair. And you get you get um, accounts back then in the first before the First World War, basically. Um, if you wanted an outcross, um, you could literally, quite literally, go out and look for one. Um, and there's 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 this great account I found in the eighteen nineties, I think it was, of a a, a a lady who bred pugs. Um, I think she wrote a little later than that, maybe looking back on when she'd first been in pugs in the eighteen nineties, I think it was saying that um, when she was establishing her kennel, she she would go out with her maid to tour the slums in the East End of London um, and see if she could find a decent looking pug there. And if she did, she'd buy it. Um, so this sort of rhetoric that um, pedigree dogs had been elevated, um, if you want to think of it in that way, above the sort of background population and separated off from them into something elite and special and different as as breeds came to be in the middle of the 19th century simply isn't true. Because around 1900, certainly before the First World War, they were regularly finding dogs, literally finding them. I mean, dealers would go out and find them on farms or whatever, depending on the breed. And if the dog looked right... That's great. You just add it to the registry. You make up some information if you've got if you've got a vague idea, or you just put it down as pedigree unknown, and off you go. Um, so it really was that simple. Um, and so yes, breed type did vary, um, but I mean, breed type varies plenty today, doesn't it? In more more you know numerically large breeds. Yeah, and I can say that for the American Kennel Club, for the purposes of participating in sports, you can take a dog with no pedigree, um, typically a rescue dog, and send in a photograph and say, I would like to register this dog as this breed. You obviously would not be able to breed that dog. And in fact, they would like you to assert that the dog is spayed, excuse me, spayed or neutered. But there's still that sort of understanding of you can kind of look at it at something and know what breed it is. Yeah, I, I mean, the, well, the UK Kennel Club has a thing called the Activity Register, which serves that purpose. Um, and in, on that, still, a dog is what you say it is. Um, so you can absolutely claim it's anything you like for the Activity Register. And as far as I know, you it, it isn't checked. Um, because The AKC, last I heard, did check you had to send in a photograph. But they right. weren't... Yeah, but they weren't super strict either. No. So <laughs> like, um, oh, that sort of looks like a golden. <laughs> but but the UK Kennel Club's breed registers technically reopened in 2011, so dogs can be added again now, um, but not without um, some um, caveats and restrictions on it. But we shouldn't get to that yet because we haven't closed them yet in the discussion. So we shouldn't be reopening them All at, right, at this point in the conversation. Forward through time. <laughs> That's right. So um, after, so, so the First World War and the Second World War, particularly the First World War, really um, decimated dog breeding in both cases. And the activities were more or less suspended, uh, entirely suspended for a short period at the end of the First World War, as I think we might have said last time. Um, and by the time activities resumed during the interwar period, the culture has shifted. Um, and ideas of pure breeding have changed to begin to think about um, pure breeding in terms of 
not bringing in the unknown of separating the breed out more from the background. So so previously, if, if you felt you needed a dog with a certain characteristic and you couldn't find one and you could wander off and, and find one, you know, literally through a dealer or something with no known background, that was completely fine. But during the interwar period, um, that became progressively discouraged. It still happened. You still see dogs registered with pedigree unknown, but um, certainly by the end of the 1930s, they were beginning to uh, differentiate in terms of the fees that they charged. So they were induced, um, introducing a, a financial deterrent to pedigree unknown. Um, and outcrossing to a different breed was only allowed with restrictions. There was a breeding up process um, whereby it was four generations before it would be regarded as, as that breed again. And you begin to get the idea culturally that pedigree dogs are better than and should be kept separate from what were then called mongrels. And you were saying this is probably linked to changing understandings of genetics and inheritance? Yeah, it's also it's also linked to um, changing understandings of race and um, eugenics in people which we kind of don't have time to go into in too much detail. Um, but ideas of um, how to breed and how to avoid problems absolutely did change with science, but to a large extent in the dog world lagged it because it takes time for these ideas to um, become sufficiently widely accepted that the people who are in positions of power in the dog world have taken them on board to the point where they start changing the rules. So there's a, a bit of a of a time lag. Um, and I strongly suspect it will play out differently in America because um, Mendelian genetics was, I think, understood and accepted more widely in the American dog world earlier than in the British dog world. Um, which was relatively slow to, I mean, there were some people who, individual people, who understood Mendelian genetics surprisingly early, before the First World War, but it didn't have a widespread impact um, on the British dog world until really after the Second World War, um, although it was becoming increasingly talked about before that. Um, but the big watershed that Mendelian genetics brought was the idea of pure breeding as not something that you um, establish by looking back at a long pedigree of illustrious ancestors. Not that that becomes a bad thing, but that's not how you prove what pure breeding is. You prove what, what pure breeding is by producing homogenous progeny. Um, which is an idea that very much came from agriculture, from the idea of developing pure breeding strains of crops or farm animals that could be literally in some cases patented as a predictable breeding output. Um, and bearing in mind that at this time there was no real understanding of genetic diversity as a good thing, um, they were very much promoting 
um, breeding pure a pure line where everybody looked the same as everybody else, and you can exactly predict what you're going to get as a very good thing, both in terms of producing dogs in a predictable appearance and also in regards to health. Um, and so progressively, um, by the until by the middle of the 20th century, um, there's a strong message that um, pure breeding means lack of genetic diversity with people absolutely thinking that's the right thing to do. That's the key thing that I think critics today don't appreciate, that it was not that people 70 years ago thought, well, we don't care about the health of these dogs, we just want them to look like a certain thing. It was that, that at that time, everybody profoundly believed that pure breeding in terms of rigid inbreeding with strict um, selection was the way to produce a, a, a purified line that you could trust wouldn't throw up you any nasty problems, including health problems. And that, you know, they thought of it very much like distillation, that you were getting rid of the the problems, the impurities, and leaving yourself with something that you could absolutely trust had been selected to be the best, both in appearance terms and in health terms. Um, and the um, shift to this mentality was what really drove the sort of desire to close the stud books, because if you have gone to all this effort to produce a purified, predictable line, the last thing you want is to sabotage it by bringing in something that looks the same, but goodness knows what breeding it has behind it and what problems it may may therefore introduce. Um, and this does, of course, um, make perfect sense if you're thinking from that understanding of good breeding, in inverted commas. And the really interesting thing which um, I discovered early on in the research process, which was a real blindsider really, was that the, in the UK, the first breed to have strictly closed breed registries was Irish setters, entirely for a health-related reason. So Irish setters in the 1940s um, in the UK and elsewhere, but particularly in the UK, had a massive problem with um, PRA, progressive retinal atrophy, which had accidentally accumulated in the breed through heavy inbreeding, as was at the time culturally preferred, to a particular stud dog that unbeknownst to anybody was carrying the allele for PRA. Um, and by the um, end of the 1930s, the breed in the UK was absolutely riddled with PRA. Um, with... And let me just pause for those who don't know. So progressive retinal atrophy and eye disease. Yes, so sorry. And eye disease, no which is still found in many breeds of dog today, um, although it's um, in most breeds now detectable by a gene test. Um, and in, in many breeds of dog, um, it causes gradual blindness with dogs losing their vision, particularly in dim light in middle age upwards. Irish setters were a bit of a special case because they go blind much, much earlier. Um, and um, as, as you'll see in a moment, obviously that's a tragedy for the individual dog, but in terms of dealing with the problem in the 1940s, 
it was um, a, a biological advantage because it meant that at a time before gene tests, it was nevertheless possible to actually deal with the disease. And the particular thing that happened with Irish setters was this: an enthusiast called Bill Rasbridge had both the motivation to do something about it and the technical ability. So Bill Rasbridge wasn't a vet or a scientist. He um, was a statistician who worked in a bank. Um, but he, his his um, qualification, um, his degree, um, he taught, he learned through night school um, at the London School of Economics in the 1920s at a time when um, genetics, Mendelism, was a really sexy new science. And he was exposed to genetics through lectures that were put on when he was at university. And he absorbed this information and applied it to his new hobby when he started breeding Irish setters as a, as a young married man a few years later. And he realized that a lot of these dogs were going blind at a young age and that people you know, unsurprisingly, don't always talk about these things, um, were very much brushing the problem under the carpet. Um, and his own first dog um, that he bought from this very well-known breeder was the product of an accidental incestuous brother-sister mating and went blind um, in her first few months of life. And he thought, this is fishy, there's something funny going on here. So he started investigating pedigrees. And despite the lack of cooperation of the breed community initially, he spent 13 years um, investigating breed pedigrees interrupted by the Second World War. Um, and then eventually, once, once he'd acquired sufficient status in the breed community for people to listen to him and to produce this vast database of information about what was then called night blindness in Irish setters, he spearheaded a campaign to deal with the disease through a cooperative program, community program of test mating and, and deliberate breeding to eliminate the problem. So what they did was he educated the breed community about the difference between a dog that appears normal but is actually a heterozygote carrying the disease and a dog that is normal both in its own self and genetically isn't carrying the disease. Um, and led the breed community in a selective breeding program whereby they deliberately bred dogs to blind dogs and then test mate and then tested the puppies literally by running them through an obstacle course in a dark room in order to find out which dogs were producing blind puppies when mated to blind dogs and therefore were carrying the gene themselves and which ones didn't produce blind puppies and therefore could be surmised to be clear of the gene. And he got the yeah, whole... Yeah, this is what's called test meetings, right? So people yes. have asked about that on our group from time to time, say, so what's a test meeting? So that's so what a is test exactly, meeting is. Yes. When you don't have a gene test, you literally deliberately try to produce the problem and see which animals are capable of genetically transmitting it and which aren't. So this is a fairly ruthless strategy because it means deliberately running the risk of producing significant numbers of blind puppies, which were then euthanized. Um, and it requires somebody with a very solid understanding of what they were doing and strong leadership 
to get a critical mass of the breed community working together to do this because one person on their own can't do it. But this guy managed to do it. And a key part of this was getting people to understand Mendelian inheritance because to these people, particularly the older ones who'd grown up before Mendelism was really a thing, this was completely revolutionary. The idea that one dog might be carrying the gene and another dog might not, but you couldn't tell them apart by looking at them. And yet there was this absolutely 100% differentiation between them was completely diff completely novel, completely alien to people who had been thinking in terms of blood and forces before. So for the people who had the old-fashioned mindset, the way you deal with an inherited problem is you dilute it, you breed away to an outcross and sort of weaken it by diluting through outcrossing, but it's not even possible to eliminate it in a couple of generations by getting rid of the gene because there's no such thing as a single defined gene if you're thinking in terms of blood and influences and all that sort of very vague nebulous stuff. Does that make sense? Um, and so he had to convince the whole Irish set of breed community of the Mendelian paradigm and then get them on board with the test mating program. And obviously they didn't all cooperate, but enough of them did that he managed to do this. But a key part of this was having a delineated population to work with. Because if you've got all manner of random dogs and you don't know who their parents are, then you can't track the information through pedigrees to be clear which ones are and aren't transmitting the gene. And so a petition from the Irish Setter Association of England led by Brill Rasbridge went to the Kennel Club saying, please, can you close the breed register so that we can fence off the population that we're dealing with this problem with from the other unregistered Irish Setters? And then we'll know exactly what we're dealing with and we won't be um, shooting ourselves in the foot by getting dogs that we haven't been able to track added to the breed population again through the back door. So there was a really sound health reason at the time for doing it in that breed. And the Kennel Club agreed to it. And from 1946, the Irish setter breed population in the UK was on a closed breed register. Other breeds weren't until 1971, not technically, though in actual fact, the number of dogs that got added to breed registers was trickling away to nothing long before the breeds were actually technically closed on the registers. Interesting. Yeah. And that's, so that's fascinating that the attempt to manage um, Mendelian diseases was the instigation for closing the registries. And that is exactly why I, I hear this as an argument when you look at it I heard this recently about flat-coated retrievers. We, here's a breed that has very decreased genetic diversity and some, uh, you know, high percentage of health problems, specifically cancer, um, associated with that. And the idea that you know we don't want to be bringing other dogs in, uh, which is what I would recommend in that case. You need to increase your diversity. This idea of Let's just make sure that we don't lose too much diversity while we're waiting for a health test, because when we get the health test, then we'll be able to breathe the cancer out, uh, which is, there's just, I can see that in one perspective, that's the same approach as what you're talking about with the setters. And in another perspective, 
it's a very different situation now than it was then, not to mention the differences between cancer and PRA. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is still this great cultural legacy that outcrop, you know, the opening breed registers is dangerous and risky. And it's partly the, the, the sort of cultural legacy of the 1960s idea that a pure um, non-hybrid population is better not just in terms of social cachet if you like but also healthier because you've purified all those nasty things out and it's partly um the we know what we're dealing with thing which was absolutely a hundred percent true in that particular example of the 1940s pra project but that was a very different world um and of course now that we have the tools of molecular genetics um, and the knowledge that genetic diversity has health benefits that weren't appreciated 70 years ago, I think we are living in a, in a really different world and dog breeding customs have always responded to science, but there's a time lag. Um, yeah, yeah. And I th I'm, I'm, I'm sort of hoping that the time lag is is beginning to um, run out, if you like, and we're beginning to move to the point where we can can think of that. Really, again, going full circle back to the ideas of over a century ago, that it's a tool in your toolbox, outcrossing if you need to. I, I would say not not that there's no virtue in selective breeding within a restricted population for periods of time or for purposes but if there's a good reason to outcross why would you not because we do now have ways of tracking any inadvertently introduced problems and even checking for them beforehand that absolutely weren't available even 30 years ago so it's a it's a different ballpark now I, I, I would say well you said when you and I were chatting right before we started recording you said um that if you think anything is you correct me if I get this quote wrong. If you think anything is simple in dog breeding or the dog world, um, you're wrong. Yeah, I, I, well, How did no, you yeah, say if, that? If, yeah. if you think it's simple, you don't understand it well enough. There it is. Um, yes, because nothing, nothing in dog breeding and um, the issue of 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 providing dogs as companions for people in society is straightforward how you breed them healthily, um, how you supply people with ethically reared ones, um, how you reconcile people's preferences with what's, you know, good in terms of dog welfare. Um, every single one of these problems, brachycephalic confirmation, closed stub books, or closed breed registries, as I should say, having made all that fuss about the <laughs> yes. terminology at the outset, um, sourcing them, none of it straightforward. Um, as soon as you start to unpack any of these things, you realize that actually it's really complicated um, and there's so many different factors at play um, and baggage from the past in, in many cases and different factions uh, not sort of thinking critically and with clarity about the issues involved, but just um, uh, banging their own drums. It's It's all very, very complicated. All right, so where are we in our chronology then? 
So 70s. I guess we've we've gone through why they closed the stud books. So by the by in in the UK by the early 1970s, people like Rasbridge were the senior figures, you know, the establishment, um, and he was a leading figure for what seemed to him excellent reasons in driving the the official closure of breed registries, which in the UK was on the 1st of January 1971. And that was the point at which the back door of, the, which, had, which had already, was already only just ajar, um, that it was still only barely, already only barely possible to um, add dogs to breed registries with um, no pedigree, but it had been technically possible. And in 1971, it was made more or less impossible. There were still technical exceptions, but in fact, the culture was quite hostile to it. And so those exceptions were were very rare. Um, And so from 1971 until the 21st century, really, um, there was very little official avenue um, opportunity for adding dogs to breed registries in the UK anyway. Um, and then, as I said earlier, that did change in 2011 when a process was formally reintroduced because of concerns about genetic diversity and the importance of um, allowing that um, avenue. Um, but despite that route being technically available again, in fact, it's hardly used because um, the Kennel Club, even if it is encouraging genetic diversity, has no mechanism for forcing people to um, prioritise that. Um, and the majority of breeders um, are not thinking in terms of outcrossing. So it's actually extremely rare um, for a dog to be added to any breed registry still, despite there actually now being a route whereby they could be. So I don't know if the structure of the Kennel Club is similar, but the American Kennel Club is a bit of an umbrella organization, and they're the individual breed clubs. And so my understanding is that whereas the American Kennel Club is not completely opposed to opening up the individual breed registries, a, a breed club could come to them and petition them, and they have agreed to that when there's a plan for um, you know how many generations until the dog is considered purebred. It's the individual breed clubs that tend to be really opposed to opening the registries, not the AKC itself. Do you have a feeling for how that corresponds to the to the KC? So I think I think the balance of feeling is similar. The actual mechanisms are a bit different. So I believe the AKC doesn't own the breed standards. I believe the breed clubs own those. The KC took over breed standards in 1950. So the KC owns and changes the breed standards not the breed clubs and the KC runs the breed registries not the breed clubs um so those are all held centrally um and the and the individual breed clubs don't have the power to open or close breed registries that decision is made centrally but obviously each person who breeds dogs has the autonomy to choose what dogs they breed and by and large they simply don't Breed, um, breed dogs that aren't on the breed registry. Um, so although the mechanism is there, it, it is, as I said, not used very much. Um, I, I mean, I, and I guess it depends as well for what 
purpose you're wanting to introduce an outcross or or use an open breed registry because there's a big difference between dealing with a simple genetic problem one way or another you know introducing a new gene to a breed or um eliminating a, a a gene from a breed though as we've seen that needs closed registries more than it needs open ones but that's a very different matter from increasing genetic diversity um obviously um because you can introduce a gene to a breed like um below uric acid acid dalmatians with a single outcross so for those who don't know um Dalmatians as a breed have a problem that um, the vast majority of them tend to produce uric acid in their urine, which makes them more likely to um, develop bladder stones. Um, and back in the 1970s, an American breeder um, outcrossed Dalmatians to pointers, a pointer, one particular pointer, in order to introduce a lower uric acid gene to the breed that would eliminate this problem. Um, and there are now a large number of low uric acid Dalmatians who all have the gene from this one original pointer, but who thereafter have been only bred with other Dalmatians so that the pointer ancestry is vanishingly small. But there's still considerable controversy within the breed community about whether these actually count as Dalmatians or not. Um, now, to my mind personally, that's ludicrous because... Um, this is uh, a clear health benefit and this is only exactly the same sort of thing as breeders in the 1890s would have done had they um, had the knowledge to understand how to deal with it so precisely. Um, and the Dalmatian is a breed that's more than 200 years old and the first Dalmatians were not on closed breed registries anyway. So you're not betraying the heritage at all. You're just going back to an earlier version of the heritage if you're just breeding spotted dogs that look a certain way, um, regardless of what their urine may or may not do. That would be my personal take on it. But you can achieve that with introducing one gene from one dog. You can't increase di genetic diversity by a single outcross. Um, I mean, I'm not a population geneticist, but I understand that you really have to do quite a lot of outcrossing to make a significant difference to genetic diversity. And obviously, therefore, you do require a breed community which has taken that on board in the same way as the British people breeding Irish setters took their opposite situation on board of breeding out a problem in the 1940s. Um, but that requires a very clear problem that people can see as an issue and a charismatic and knowledgeable leader who's got the willpower to overcome obstacles and, and pull people together. Um, and I think with as nebulous a problem as genetic diversity, that's extremely difficult conditions to produce. A, a visible problem like dogs going blind at a young age is a much more tangible threat that people want to deal with yeah. than a, a vague well, problem. It's the type of disease that you happen to get as well. So I'd say that the problem with uric acid in Dalmatians was due to reduced genetic diversity, but it was a Mendelian disease, meaning there was a particular allele of a particular gene that was the problem. They could test for it, and then they could breed in that new allele and fix it. Very straightforward, right? So then yeah. when you talk about golden retrievers, flat-coated retrievers, Bernese mountain dogs, 
any number of other breeds that have cancer problems, very high rates of cancer. Um, again, that is, again, a decreased genetic diversity problem. But cancer is not a single, is not due to a single allele, which is, I think, a, a, an issue that a lot of people who are waiting for the test for cancer in these breeds may not understand that there's never going to be a genetic test for cancer because it is not caused by a single broken gene, right? It's caused by some array of genes that we're going to have real trouble tracking down the large numbers of them, um, which is why there's not, you can't just breed in once and then keep breeding back and testing to make sure you have the correct version of the gene. It's not a the gene problem. No, if that exactly. makes sense. Yeah. Exactly. And in our current state of scientific knowledge, that's not something that is going to, it, it might be possible to breed dogs that were less likely to get cancer, but it's not going to be a binary do this and the problem will go away completely forever situation. And, and single yeah, even, Right. Even if we could get a test, say there's 12 genes mm. that are the problem. And I think even if we could, which just to clarify, we're very, very far away from, even if we could get the test for all 12 genes, imagine and having to make those breeding decisions with this dog has 11 of them and this dog has eight of them and this dog has five of them. And, and who do I breed to who? It just is so complicated. While making sure that they still look like a golden retriever and don't bite people. Yeah. And that too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's really hard. And of course, even with single allele conditions, there have been you know, instances in the past of breeding away from a certain problem and inadvertently increasing the rate of another problem in a breed because the dogs that people use in order to avoid problem A then turn out to be carrying problem B. Um, so all of this is a, is a complete minefield. Outcrossing is not, uh, is not easy and breeding away from problems is is fraught with pitfalls except in those instances where you have a well-defined gene test um and those you know that those those have been transformed in the last 30 years those are the low-hanging fruit we're, we're you know we're, we're lucky with that category of problem the rest are going to be a lot more tricky i think yeah and i also i want to yes outcrossing is is very difficult in the in the structure that you and i are talking about right now where you have a uh, population of dogs that has been closed for a while has very decreased diversity and for which type is very, very important to people. Um, but if we're looking back to the way you were just discussing how people bred dogs in the past, outcrossing wasn't hard because they were in a whole different frame of approaching how we breed dogs. Yeah, exactly. I think the best way of envisaging it, it is literally like we have chosen to deprive ourselves of a tool in the toolbox you know, it's like you're saying you know you're not allowed to use hammers when you're building a house um and um it does it to my mind it doesn't make sense and the bizarre thing is that a lot a lot of the justification for not doing it is based on people's understanding of the traditions of dog breeding, but what they're actually thinking of is a specific time period in something that has always changed and been in flux, um, which was at the time considered good science. But now it's not considered good science because science has moved on. 
and yet it's been fossilized as a as a sort of mantra that people cling on to as if it were a religious belief but it isn't it's something that was developed by people for what in the past for what seemed good reasons to them at the time and now we're standing well, and in well, a... which were good reasons at the time yeah, right they were they yeah, were i'm not I'm, yeah exactly yeah, I mean, we shouldn't diss the people in the past they you know these these were they respon- were doing the best they could with what That's they knew right. these were respond this is the interesting thing that these were responsible people using the science of the day to do the best they could to breed healthier dogs and I've actually, you've absolutely nailed it because I actually think that in a way we're almost betraying them by clinging on to their ideas now that they've been discredited through science moving on. Because what they were doing was adopting the latest science to breed healthier dogs. And that's actually what we should be doing if we're trying to follow the spirit of what they were doing rather than the letter Perfect. of it. Yes, yes. Yes, I agree. That's very well said. So so this is why I think that history is actually a, a really surprising tool for looking at dog breeding with, because if you actually look at what people were doing and what was happening, rather than what we now think was happening, it gives you a whole different perspective on the situation. Yeah. All right. So where do we go from here then? Well, I guess we keep having these conversations. So, in which case, it might be a good point then for me to bring up some questions that some people asked after they um, heard your our previous conversation. Sure. Um, so, you good for me to, to read those? Yeah, absolutely. Let's see. I'm actually going to start with this question from Juniper Zen, um, who says, in all kinds of livestock and other domesticated animals... It's very common for people to bring in an animal from another breed and add genetic diversity or desirable traits, particularly when creating a strain or a new breed that is particularly suited to their local area. Once the descendant animals are breeding true, they're often considered purebred again or a legitimate new breed. So why is it that completely closed, uh, she says stud books, but we would say registries, right? Completely closed registries are held onto so tightly in the modern dog fancy. And then she gives uh, Merle Poodles as an example, which I think we could we could certainly talk about. Sure. So I think, I mean, we've sort of partly discussed um, why why closed registries are held onto so tightly. There's we could unpick, you know, cultural mythology a lot more, but I guess we, you know, we're getting we've already been talking for a while. We should keep this fairly brief. I think introducing new colours is a particularly controversial one. Um, so obviously, which colours are found in which breeds was originally um, a, a random thing that became codified in a somewhat arbitrary way. And there isn't always any logic or sense to it. But it's something that a lot of people who breed dogs care passionately about today. And to some extent, the people who say it can't possibly be blue, it's a bulldog, or it can't possibly be merle, it's a poodle, have a very obvious point in that the novelty value of those colours in breeds where they're not traditionally found does mean that um, 
commercial breeders, people who are breeding for profit above all else, can charge a premium for these so-called rare colours. And those people are very often not prioritising other aspects such as healthy confirmation or good temperament or whatever else if they're breeding only for colour. Um, and therefore the people who are very wound up about breeding for novelty colours and who claim that breed people who breed for novelty colours are bad and irresponsible breeders have a, a deal of truth to their argument, although as always, it's not that simple. Um, but you can see where they're coming from. And I think the other issue is that there are some health problems associated with some of these colours. And unfortunately, as many of us in it would know, Merle is a prime example. So don't get me wrong, I absolutely love Merle to look at as, look at as a colour. I've never had a Merle dog, but I would love to have one. They're beautiful. But we know that homozygous Merles and occasionally even heterozygous Merles um, do have problems with um, vision and hearing. Um, because, um, and I know that the genomics of that is, is more complicated these days, but to put it in traditional simple terms, if you're a homozygote um, and you have a mostly white coat and you're deaf and blind, obviously that's a welfare issue. Um, and therefore, breeding merles is somewhat problematic because unless people know what they're doing, if they put two merles together and they may not even know that one of the dogs is merle, you run a risk of producing puppies that do have significant impairments. So um, I understand why people who like the colour and are used to it in a certain breed value that. Um, the UK Kennel Club has decided that they won't register merle animals except from breeds that are traditionally Merle that have Merle in the breed standard. And I think that's actually quite a sensible compromise because it's not realistic and maybe not even desirable to eliminate Merle from breeds where it's always been. And people in those breed communities tend to know how to handle Merle. Whereas in a breed which hasn't traditionally been Merle, then there's likely to be more possibility of people doubling up on it. Um, and you can see why there are some sound reasons to argue against it. So I think, as with everything, it's a mix of factors. Some of them are hard to justify and some of them have much more rational basis to them. Um, but it's the sort of issue, like so many others in the dog world, that arouses strong feelings and that people have powerful passion and strong views about. And therefore, it tends to be polarising, like so much else, so people don't often sit and think, well, actually, what is going here? What arguments do the other side have? You know, is there some, you know, way in which I should stop in my position or at least understand why they care in this way? So then to play devil's argument, so I, to play devil's advocate, because I agree with everything you said, um, <laughs> so <nice>. but I <laughs> also want to point out, so one of the questions about Merle and Poodles is that Merle was introduced into Poodles possibly as much as 40 years ago, from what I've heard. And so it's quite easy at this point to have a line of poodles that is very, that is bred with a lot of thoughtfulness in terms of health, you know, prioritizing the health of the animals, but where you, you actually do find a merle animal that you'd like to breed in. 
perhaps uh, even for genetic diversity purposes. Um, and there's still this real resistance to the idea that there can be any, um, as people would say, ethically bred Merle poodles today, even though it's been so long since Merle was bred in there. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's a visible thing that you can easily um, distinguish and therefore, you know, it, it's like it's got a target painted on it, hasn't it? Um, you can have um, animals that have some problematic to their aspect to their breeding um, that's a lot less e easy to point out than being Merle and people don't necessarily get so excited about it. I mean, is a Merle poodle any worse than another desirable poodle? And you look back at the pedigree and you and you know very well that that dog three generations ago, the breeder um, was, you know, running a puppy farm and the pedigrees are likely to be, um, you know, um, half invented anyway. Um, and even if they weren't, you know, this fictitious breeder I'm making up, I'm not before anybody thinks talking about anybody in the real world whatsoever you know actually had a criminal record or something you know there's all sorts of right, ways right. in which pedigrees or breeding can be problematic but color is a very easy one to point at it is all right well then let's let's so i think part of uh juniper's question was also maybe along the lines of why are outcrosses so so resisted in uh in dogs which maybe is something that we have spent this episode talking about right that there's this history of of controlling the registries being associated with health and that we are slow to pivot on that yeah so it's a combination of um pure breeding in the sense of pure races being um part of the wider zeitgeist in the first third of the 20th century and then that translating into pure breeding for health in the middle of the 20th century, which was an entirely, you know, laudable aim that everybody could get behind. And then that become becoming fossilized in a that's what we do because that's how we do it sort of way where people are, are sort of not thinking to unpack it and going, well, wait, why did we start doing it that way? Um, should we actually still be doing it that way? Or is this something that maybe we should be revisiting and, you know, not turning our backs on, but just modifying in the in the light of the latest scientific information? Um, and I think I think the key thing is to is you know to if, if people are trying to open their minds is to think of it as not betraying their heritage, but just looking to a different part of the heritage, rather than the mid-century notion of good breeding. Go back fifty years, and then you'll find a version that actually d maps much better onto what we think of in terms of promoting genetic diversity today. Or even combining the two in a in a new way to yeah, exactly to get you can to take a new the best understanding from, from anywhere and, and use them as as, right. as 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 seems fit, can't you? I think that's powerful because I think a lot of people. I've certainly heard a lot of people say, but you know, this is. This is the history of the breed. This is how it's been done, you know, for 150 years. Um, and I don't want to break with the tradition that is really revered in a way. And I, I understand that, but I think it's powerful to point out that maybe our perception of what this long tradition is, is misunderstood. Yeah, it has not been the same tradition for all that time. 
Um, and there are some things that were done in the past, like really savage inbreeding, which mm. pretty much nobody would do so um, readily now. Um, I don't know whether inbreeding between first degree relatives is banned under the AKC. It is under the KC. Um, I don't believe it is, but but uh, I could be so, wrong. Hopefully, hopefully so I, I, I will think hear. the KC ban you know sort of mother mother son mate type matings and the like <laughs> in 2009. Um, but even if it wasn't banned, people would would hesitate a bit before they they made that sort of decision now. Whereas you know in the past it was considered you know great job go for it you know. Um, <laughs> if if they've both got good Fixing heads, they'll the have trait. really excellent yeah. heads, the puppies, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, everybody, if they think about it, knows that these ideas do change to some extent. Um, you know, the breeders of the past would have been delighted to have had gene tests, wouldn't they? Um, I, think, I think so. So it, it's just a matter of being that little bit more open, I think, to um, adapting ideas as it seems appropriate to do so all right so izzy has another question uh where she says um that in the, your our last interview she, that you mentioned that lap dogs were controversial at the end of the 18th century and she says she's curious what happened there and whether there's any connection to today's stigma against doodles being companion dogs and sort of this general companion dog stigma when compared to working in performance breeds and breed mixes um, so I think there's a question about there. So there's three questions there, right? There's why was there a stigma against lap dogs? Does that have any relationship to the stigma against doodles? And does it have any relationship to a stigma more generally against breeding dogs for pets rather than breeding dogs for worker sports? So I would say it doesn't have much to do with the anti-doodle stigma. Um, I think that Again, maybe it's different in in the U.S., but certainly over here, partly it it that comes out of sort of purist pure breeders not liking the idea of a cross at all. Partly it comes out of the fact that many of the as with the as with the non-standard colours issue that many of the people who breed some of these designer cross breeds, particularly. Um, you know, maybe more a few years ago, were breeding purely for money and profit with little care for their breeding practices either uh, in any other way. So that the idea... Yes, as that, with any popular breeder mix, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. For sure. So yeah. that the, yeah. the idea that they're problematic was played out um, to some extent because they really were being bred carelessly rather than because there was sure. something inherently awful about them. Um, and also, I think, again, certainly in the UK, um, particularly perhaps with cockapoos, which are now tremendously popular over here, you know, you cr I, I, as I said on the last po podcast, I've got two miniature poodles. I'm not anti-poodles in any shape or form. But poodles and cocker spaniels are two active, intelligent, lively breeds. You cross them together and, and they're suddenly meant to become enormously suitable often for novice families who've never had a dog before and are trying to fit a dog into a busy lifestyle. And they choose something that's active, intelligent, highly strung, grows more hair than both its parents put together um, and is somehow meant to fit into a family lifestyle with very little effort because it was the 
choice that they made as the popular go-to breed without doing much research. And then they get issues with the dog. Um, so I think the doodle phenomenon is, is a very particular thing, um, which, like everything else, has lots of causes. I don't think it maps on to the 18th century lapdog thing at all. Some of the 18th century lapdog thing definitely does map on to stigma against pet dogs in terms of dogs being useless parasites rather than contributing members of the community. And certainly in the 18th century, that played out very much in terms of them being used in popular culture as as a vehicle for expressing misogyny. Um, and if you want to know more about this, you should invite Stephanie Howard Smith on, who can talk to you at length about 18th century lapdogs. They're not particularly about breeding, so maybe it's a little bit off-piste. Um, but she's a historian who has um, written lots about the 18th century lapdog and how in you know uh, fiction and um, art of the time, you see this sort of... Um, stereotyping it as a plaything of you know weak indulgent women um so 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 that sort of lapdog trope does still play out in, over the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries too i think interesting yeah i, I was just, i'm just visualizing some of the images i've seen of celebrities with dogs in their purses yeah, maybe yeah. today's version of that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. The 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 dog is fashion accessory. Um, you can you can trace it right back to the middle of the eighteenth century, definitely, and um, probably before. Yeah, and and being right. sort of sneered at it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 understanding that that's sort of just for the purposes of uh, speaking to the listeners understanding that that's sort of a, a different concept than breeding a dog to be a, a really good pet, but there may be overlap in how people perceive it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. And so then our final our final question from a Patreon member, um, again from Izzy, she says, in my region of the U.S., the Northeast, the push to get a dog through a shelter or rescue over a breeder, so the push for someone to acquire a dog through a shelter or rescue rather than through a breeder, remains prevalent despite fewer dogs being available for adoption. With the goal of improving the health of the dog population through breeding, how do you see the general public's negative view of breeders hindering this goal and movement? And how do you think we could build more social acceptance for breeders? So it's not quite the topic that we were talking about today, but I think it's still an important topic when you're thinking about changes in the in, in, over history and perception of, of breeders and how breeders act and how they fit into society. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a great question because it, it's a massive problem. And I, I think although many well people, well-meaning people use it, the adopt, don't shop mantra is toxic because buying a dog from a breeder is not, in my mind, a, you know, automatically a bad thing to do in the way it is often portrayed. And there's a very simplest a tendency to very simplistically describe, you know, lump all breeders together, which is obviously rubbish. I mean, you know, uh, we all know they're that there, there are some breeders who exactly yes. there are some breeders who, you know, couldn't breed more ethically if they tried because literally their every waking thought is devoted to ethical dog breeding, and other dog breeders who are literally criminals, um, for whom the dogs are a commodity. Um, 
and their you know their actions are absolutely appalling and a whole spectrum in between of you know people breeding in different ways for different purposes so clearly lumping all breeders together as some you know activists tend to do is just silly as well as really unhelpful because there simply aren't in, in although they're you know at, at various points rescue organizations can be very busy and overwhelmed there aren't enough rescue dogs to satisfy the demand for dogs in total certainly in the uk and if and if that's people... that's true here as well that we've, right. we've looked at the number of millions of dogs that need to be born each year to yeah. keep the dog population Somebody needs stable to breed them how many come out of shelters is fewer than that and also right. there's a mismatch between the types of dog that are produced and the types of dog that people want often you know and if if people are overproducing one t- one type of dog that's maybe quite problematic to live with you can't you can't force little old ladies to mop up the surplus po- surplus population of XL bullies can you you know um you you need to um be able to provide people with dogs that are suitable um, for their lifestyles and their needs if the dog-human relationship is meant is is to be pleasurable and enhance the lives of both parties, which presumably is what we would all ideally like to happen. So you yeah, need good breeders, I... and you need some yeah. way of encouraging people to support good breeders and to differentiate in their purchasing decisions, and that's the tricky bit because so many apparently very sensible and clever people appear to leave their brains at the door when they're choosing a dog to buy. And not just that, it's very, very difficult in this day and age, it turns out, to actually make sure that the breeder that you're working with is behaving in the way that you expect them to behave. Absolutely. It's a real minefield for puppy buyers. And all the interventions to try and um, clarify that process for them and regulate it are problematic and... Um, the, the, the bad guys always find a way around it um, and and the good guys are, are discouraged by the prejudice against them. You know, it's not simple. None of this is simple. Um, no. But I think good breeders striving to breed well and be transparent about what they do and talk about what they do and promote what they do has got to help. And I think you know, vets or other activists or commentators need to make more effort to appreciate the difficulties in breeding and discriminate in what they advise and say between people who are trying to do it well and the people who aren't, the bad actors. Yeah. And and I think that when we talk about a surplus surplus population of a particular breed and and pities is again, you know, in my area of the country would be that type of dog of which there are more of them than there are homes that are appropriate for them. I I very much sympathize with the people who are out there trying to help the dogs. Oh, of course. But of I, course. Of course. And I and I just want to want to sort of say you can do both at once, right? You can try to help manage the dogs that are looking for homes. And you can also try to help support the breeders who are creating dogs who will be behaviorally resilient appropriate pets and who if they manage to end up in a shelter will be easier to place than the dogs coming out of breeders who don't have that foremost in their minds so that if what you really care about is helping shelter dogs which 
hopefully is true for all of us, but is a higher priority for some people than for others, then I, I firmly believe that supporting breeders who are doing the right thing, um, who are producing dogs who really fit into homes well, actually does help shelter dogs. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think it's just unnecessary to make people who buy a dog from a breeder feel guilty and that they've done something shameful for doing that. Because there are many reasons why that will be the right decision for some people. Um, it may be their only choice if um, they're in circumstances where many, many rescue centres won't rehome to people with younger children, for example, um, at all. Um, or people who don't have a secure fenced garden. And, you know, sometimes those reasons you can see where they're coming from. Sometimes I think those criteria do exclude good homes. Um, or it's just that you want a very specific sort of dog to fit your lifestyle or because of your own passion for that particular kind of dog. I don't think those are things to be ashamed of. Um, you may need a small dog because you live, I don't know if this is true as much in the UK, but here, if you're in a big city, you live in an apartment complex, there may be rules that you can't have a dog over 30 pounds. And those literally are the dogs that are the hardest to find. Dogs under 30 pounds are the hardest to find in shelters around here. Really? Really? Yeah. No, exactly. I think, you know, when we talked about polarization earlier, it's the thing I keep coming back to with this. If everybody involved in this world made a bit more effort to understand the perspective of people who don't see the same way as they do, it would facilitate an awful lot of progress in an awful lot of areas, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. That's really hard for people right now. Um, well, I suppose with that, I would love to invite you, see if we can get you onto our Facebook group so you can see some of what we're doing, okay. of trying to facilitate those conversations, no pressure. Um, but it is, for those who don't know about the Facebook group, it is a place exactly where people are coming together from all these different places. And we try very hard to help keep the, the conversations polite with the understanding that it is Facebook. Um, sure. But we don't we don't tolerate hate speech there. Good, good. World needs more places where there isn't any hate speech tolerated. <laughs> so thank you so much for all of this. Um, You're very welcome. It's fascinating. Great. Okay. Well, thank you for having all me right. again. Hey friends, some of you have asked how to support the podcast, so we've set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing this podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functional breeding. You could also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally, or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Attila Merton. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the FDC, check out the functionalbreeding.org website. Enjoy your dogs.